football team, said former Oklahoma University coach Bud Wilkinson, is happening where 50,000 spectators desperately needing exercise sit in the stands watching 22 men on the field desperately needing rest. <clears throat> this lopsided ratio of spectators to participants is true in the sports world, but the picture is just the opposite when presented in Scripture about God's church. The Bible teaches that every person who accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is on the field, and they have gifts given them by God by the indwelling Spirit. This morning, we're going to conclude our six-part series that we've been studying uh, in the first chapters of the book of Acts, talking about the birth of God's church. And we've seen how the church waited expectantly for the Holy Spirit, believing that God would fulfill His promise, and He did. And then Pentecost, chapter 2, reminds us that Jesus reigns today. The Spirit of God that's given to every believer is a guarantee that we are His, and He is ours, and we can meet every challenge we face in Jesus Christ. In Acts 3, we saw ourselves as the lame beggar who was healed. And we're reminded by that story that the Spirit of God uses us the same way He used that beggar, as witnesses to God's goodness and life-changing power. Then, in Acts chapter 4, and Peter and John, with their boldness before the Jewish authorities, we describe that heroic courage as derivative faith. Maybe some of you remember those words. Derivative faith. Their boldness to confront evil with goodness and oppression with justice and skepticism with a simple faith is a derivative of God being enthroned in the heart of the believer and the Holy Spirit reigning within. It's a derivative courage. Then last week, the story of Acts, in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira juxtaposed with the generosity of Barnabas, that illustrated a radical attitude that's created in us through the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Generosity. I learned this week a new word, a new phrase, and I thought I'd uh, share it with you. It's called the overview effect. I've never heard of that before. But the overview effect happened for Jeff Ashby. I'm going to take just a minute. This is last week's sermon, but I couldn't help but say a bit more. So if you'll allow me. Jeff Ashby was just a kid when the first American, Alan Shepard, flew into space in 1961. Just six years old. But that event birthed a dream in Jeff Ashby's six-year-old brain. At 14, Ashby tuned in with the rest of the world as we watched the live, some of you remember this, the live television broadcast of Apollo 8, Mission on Christmas Eve, Circling the Moon. Some of you remember that. The, true, the crew on board that mission, Apollo 8, took turns reading from the book of Genesis. It's almost hard to imagine that happening today, but they did. You remember, 
in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. They spoke from outer space as they circled the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's what those spacemen said, those astronauts. The Apollo 8 crewmen took dazzling photographs, and this one I'm sure you remember, the most famous called Earthrise. Remember that? Earthrise. Not sunrise, not moonrise, Earthrise. In 1999, Jeff Ashby was 45 years old, and he realized his boyhood dream, and he traveled to space as pilot of the space shuttle Columbia. In eight minutes, in eight minutes, he went from Earth to 150 miles above in orbit. (laughs) That's some acceleration. And that experience changed Jeff Ashby. You know, making it into space is an achievement that very few people achieve. And so it's no surprise that most astronauts, Ashby included, are driven by extreme ambition and achievement. The glory of that space flight for Jeff Ashby motivated him For years. I mean, that's what he wanted to do. That's what he wanted to be. But after that first mission for Ashby, he fundamentally changed. And he talks about that. He had once been centered on just personal fulfillment. But now he was thinking about a greater good instead of his own personal goals. That dramatic shift that happened for Jeff Ashby's with that space flight is what social scientists call the overview effect. Interesting, huh? The overview effect. By the way, you can book a seat today on the earliest available flight for (laughs) $250,000 if you want to have that experience. Um, Space-induced for yourself, the overview of, or, or another way is to say yes to the creator God. Say yes to the creator God. This all generous, all giving, miraculous giving God has given us by his spirit a spontaneous generosity that just is overwhelms within us this overview effect. Knowing him, knowing him personally transforms me from a self-centered to a God-centered man and creates in me a generosity of heart that returns and gives because I sense the enormous, incalculable gift that God has given me in Jesus Christ. And so I give. That's was, that was last week, Acts chapter 5. And now we come to this week, Acts chapter 6, and the final of our study. And we see here the Holy Spirit's gifting of believers with abilities and ministries needed to fulfill God's purpose for us here on planet Earth. No, contrary to professional sports, the church is not a place where paid professionals perform. 
and members spectate. That's not the church. The church is a every gifted member organization. Every gifted, every person is gifted and using those God-given gifts and talents to minister in the church, for the church, and for the world. On Sabbath morning, we come together. Member ministers, all of us ministers, gathering for encouragement, for instruction, for inspiration and fellowship. But then the rest of the week, we suit up, don't we? We suit up, and that's our life. That's our ministry. We're on the field. The story of God's church at its outset is one full of supernatural vigor, and we see it in in each chapter of the book of Acts. And as we saw last week, it's not a pure, it wasn't a pure church. Uh, There was, there were problems. There was deceitful scheming, like we saw of Ananias and Sapphira, and Later on, we see other more challenging and threatening issues. It's true that the work of the Spirit of God in this fallen world always sweeps into the gospel net fish of every kind. And so it is that there is an ultimate sorting that happens in the church. God's church will always face controversy and challenge. There will be people, there will be experiences that are contrary, that that are disruptive, that are maybe even divisive. But that does not, and it has not, and nor will it ever rebuff the Spirit of God working in God's church. There are issues today that challenge us. They challenge God's church locally and, and globally. Last week, I enjoyed visiting with my my daughter and my son-in-law, and during conversation, they mentioned the conversation that they had with one of their uh, peers about just the disparaging feeling that this person had about the church. And they asked me, do I think the church is going to divide? Do I think the church will survive? They asked me, my daughter and son-in-law. You know, I said to them, I don't have a single doubt in my mind. Not a single doubt. God's church is not a mere human organization. Jesus established this church on an unshakable rock called God's love. (laughs) Unshakable rock of God's love and justice. And he said the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's what Jesus said. So the church will not fail. God raised this church up. This church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, as part of his final appeal to planet earth before Jesus Christ returns. And this church will not fail. Yeah, there'll be challenges. Sometimes they may even appear overwhelming. The church may appear to be on the verge of faltering and even failure. But God is our foundation. And His power, His ways are immutable. And as long as we're faithful to Him and faithful to His Word, we are safe. We are secure. So, lest I give you the impression of despair, God's church is on the move today. 
around the world, in Asia, in Africa, in, in Central America. God, God is doing amazing things by His power and strength. And in our midst, God is at work as well. There are people right now at Washington State Penitentiary watching this broadcast. There are people this afternoon who will be gathering in that place to worship together. Prisoners are finding freedom in Jesus Christ right here in our midst, in our schools, in our places of education, our children, our youth, right here in our church through Pathfinders and Adventures and all the other wonderful ministries for children. God's people, His children's lives are being changed. That's what the book of Acts is about. Besides documenting the miraculous growth and, yes, the challenges faced by the Christian movement early on, Luke also tells us how the church overcame threatening obstacles to growth. And that's what Acts chapter 6 is about. And that's where we find ourselves today. And it's interesting to me that this section of challenge and, and growth is bookend ended on both sides with references to miraculous growth. Notice it there, chapter 6, verse number 1, the beginning part. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, there it starts with those words, what was happening in the church? It was increasing. Disciples were increasing. It finishes it in verse number 7, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So right there, sandwiched between these two verses, these two statements of growth, the miraculous growth, there happens a threat to the Christian movement, and it gives us the story of how that threat was overcome. There are cultural and ethnic tensions in our church today. There are challenges that we face, but God's church will overcome by His strength and power. So here in this story, though, there are uh, the threat that faces the church has really two parts. And the first part involved a conflict between you know, two different people, uh, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians and the Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians. And you can see that in the second part of verse number one of chapter number six, Acts 6, 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, things were on the roll, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So you see here the challenges, cultural, ethnic, language, Hellenistic Jews, in other words, Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebraic Jews, or the Jews who spoke uh, Hebrew, are at odds with each other. You know, the Jewish community in Jerusalem was diverse. It spoke many different languages. We know that this from the day of Pentecost, when the crowds heard the disciples speaking in all sorts of languages. That's because the Jews spoke in all those languages. Among them, there were many languages and, and many backgrounds, but two were prominent. Aramaic, which was the classical form of Hebrew, spoken by Jews who remained in Judea and lived in Jerusalem, near Jerusalem, and also Greek, spoken by the Jews who were part of the diaspora, the spreading out of the Jews when they were um, flung throughout Palestine. So both these groups, these languages, they were both Jewish people, but they 
represented vastly different perspectives. The Palestinian or Hebrew Jews, as you might imagine, prided themselves for their pureness. They lived in the homeland, you see. They had never gone elsewhere. They used the language of their heritage and they worshipped in the temple regularly. The Hellenistic Jews on the other side, on the other hand, were outliers in language, in social perspective. They reflected Greek culture in many ways. Now, they were all Jews, and they all had an overriding sense of Jewishness, and their belief in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord bound them together as disciples and wove them into one body. But when the basic care of the Hellenistic widows was overlooked, fractures appeared. You know, for every sincere Israelite, this matter of the care of the widows was important. One of the core duties you, I'm sure, realize was to care for widows and orphans. We see it over and over again in the Old Testament. And the widows in the Greek, in the congregation, the Greek widows, were not getting enough. And God's work was being compromised. That was one part of the threat, okay? One part of the threat. The second part involved what would happen if the presenting problem was solved the wrong way. That was the second part of the problem. And you get a glimpse of this when you read verse number 2, Acts chapter 6. Notice what it says. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, would it not be right for us it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, notice those first words. It would not be right for us. Doesn't that sort of sound like a defense? Doesn't it sound like they're answering a, a proposition? Someone must have made the suggestion to the apostles that it would, in fact, be a good idea if they would give a little bit more hands-on attention to these widows. Someone must have said that. Now, they were involved already. It was part of their ministry. You can see that from Acts chapter 4 and verse 35. It mentions there that the apostles were involved in this matter. It says in verse 34 and 35, from time to time, those who owned lands or houses, sold them, brought them money from the sales and put them at the, what? Apostles' feet. So they were in charge. They were managing this. And it was distributed by them to the church. But evidently, we don't, we're not told the whole story, but we can kind of fill in the gaps. The burden of this management became more than they could handle, giving their attention to their calling, which was the ministry of the word, was challenged. So really the second threat faced by the early church was a diminishing of the ministry of the word. And this was more important than we might imagine. Verse number six reports what happened because the apostles focused on the ministry of the word and prayer. Notice what it says. So the word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So when God's church focused in the right way, there was a multiplying effect and the church grew and even 
among the priests and religious leaders. In other words, Luke tells us that the good news of Christ kept spreading and multiplying because the apostles put their attention where they knew they should with prayer and the ministry of the word. And Luke teaches us that whatever threatens the ministry of the word threatens the movement of God. Now, it wouldn't have been wrong, it wouldn't have been wrong at all for the apostles to be involved in the nitty-gritty care of the widows. Wouldn't have been wrong at all. James, the Lord's brother, was certainly a part of this early church, reflected here in these verses. He was no doubt a part of the, this, this movement at this time, and he wrote some years later in James chapter 2, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So it was a good thing. I mean, this was a good and important thing. It was a good thing for the apostles to do. It was a good for the church to do. But the church had become thousands by this time. Thousands. And this important ministry of service to the widows and supporting them had become more demanding than the 12 could manage and still have time for their appointed ministry. And so their solution was Holy Spirit-guided. Acts chapter 6, 3 and 4. Brothers and sisters, said these apostles, choose men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So God led the apostles to a solution that would not succumb to either threat. The widows would not be neglected, nor would the apostles' attention to the Word of God and prayer. You know, it's kind of interesting to compare what the apostles and early church did with what happened in history later in God's church, <laughs> what the church has done since that time when faced with problems. Since that time when complainers arise, the church just threw those complainers out. That's what they did. And controversies resulted in, well, you could say, the first apostolic church of Jerusalem on one street and the second apostolic church of, uh, um, church of Jerusalem on the other side of the street. That's what happened through time in the church. Other solutions that the church has had throughout time um, are more of a, a different tactic, shunning the problem shunning the difficult people. They, they won't throw them out. That would be much too unchristian. They'll just ignore them. And that'll teach them not to complain. Another way that we've dealt with problems like this through history is to call a meeting and then outvote the dissenters. That's another tactic. Someone makes a motion being sure that they follow Robert's rules of order because that would be unchristian to do such a thing, <laughs> not to do that. And then they call for a vote and the majority prevails. Everything is done democratically. Who could complain? Losers have to be quiet because the decision is made 
And we all know that the Holy Spirit always works through a majority. Sometimes the solution has been a little bit different than that. The solution has been separation. You know, the purists say, we'll start our own church and leave them to, their, to their, themselves. That works pretty well until the people in the purist church find dissenters among them and they want to start another pure church. Then you have to start another and another and another and another. The, the apostles could have done also what, well, this is kind of like what our church loves to do. Form a committee and discuss the problem. <laughs> well, form a committee and discuss that problem. And by the time the committee meets, discusses the issue, they hope that the problem just goes away. <laughs> but it often superseded by a bigger one. You know, the apostles didn't use any of those solutions to their problem. They determined to put the trouble right once. This allocation of charity to the widows was a vital issue, but it was beyond their primary business. So they called the community together, and they asked them, select seven men to oversee the work. You can see it there. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. Now, these men must have been honorable. And they had a reputation so that the church, so the church could have confidence in what they did and the decisions they made. In other words, they were full of the Spirit of God, dedicated to God, and known among the people for their devotion and their commitment to God. And they're also called in this verse wise men. In other words, they were competent. They were, they were good. They were qualified at administration. They, they were, were qualified to, to deal prudently with a situation that was fraught with high emotions and potential misunderstanding. So they took wise men. And in this episode, we learn that um, this is really what happens in God's church when it prospers. So far we've seen in our study of the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit brought boldness and generosity and winsomeness, winsome witness to his church. In this episode we also learn that the Spirit of God brought gifts to the church into the body for the body and for the world. A little bit later on, the Apostle Paul will write about these gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit brings to every follower of Jesus. Everyone, the Bible says, who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is gifted by the Spirit. Every person who confesses his Lordship is given a unique gift to be employed among and in within the members of the body, the church, in a way and in a place that honors God and brings glory to Him in the world. And everyone serves according to this God-given giftedness. And when everyone does that, serving with this God-given giftedness, the church does what God intended the church to do. That's what the church is all about. 
A little bit later, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So God gives special gifts to His church. Wisdom and, and kindness. He gives knowledge to others. He gives generosity of faith to some. He gives mercy or encouragement or hospitality to others. He gives the gift of serving and teaching and, and leading and giving and organizing to, to others. And everybody has unique gifts because they're all in within each one of us and our own expression. And every person and their gift is important. This afternoon at 3.30, Violin Praise is going to gather right here on this platform and have a concert in glory to God. And, you know, I'd have to say, I'm going to be there, and I'd have to say that they would not be able to make the music that they are planning to make if even the most insignificant members of that group that we may consider insignificant are not there. They will not be able to make the music that they're planning to make without them. The same way in the body of Christ. God has gifted each one of us with special gifts and abilities as it says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12 and 13, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attending to whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what's supposed to happen in God's church. The Holy Spirit empowers every believer with spiritual gifts and skills to share God's love and, and strength to others. The Spirit has provided this church and every church throughout time with the gifts it needs to accomplish its work. I have confidence in God's church. God uses each one of us and it, through us, working together, lives are made whole. That's what happens in the church. People are changed from self-destructive and hurtful ways to joyful, happy, and peaceful ways. That's what the church is about. People who are struggling with temptations are encouraged to overcome and strengthened to overcome those challenges. People who need support and encouragement, who may be struggling with loss or illness or hardship, they're put together with others who stand with them through hard times and who share their happiness and joys with those who need that encouragement. People come together to, to learn and to encourage and to, to gain wisdom and counsel and strength. And that's what the church is all about. That's what Village Church is about. And it happens by the Holy Spirit power, working in each member, rubbing shoulders with other gifted members, and lovingly and winsomely taking that love to our community. That's the church. And it all began back there with seven gifted men in Jerusalem. That's what the early church did. It selected those seven men and then laid hands on those seven and they were commissioned by so doing to serve in behalf of the body in the special work of benevolence. And the church was blessed. Luke interrupts his narrative to report the success. Look at it in verse number seven. So the word of God spread. 
the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. No, no, the church is not a spectator sport. (laughs) It's not a few professionals performing while members spectate. Not at all. In the church, every believer is gifted. A gifted player. Using the God gives God-given talents to serve and build and encourage and live God's justice, God's mercy, and humbly walking with Him. On Monday afternoon, this past week, November 26, and maybe some of you were watching this, NASA's InSight spacecraft landed on Mars. You know that, don't you? It was an amazing thing. This mechanical, three-legged, one-armed mining spacecraft will drill into the interior of Mars and investigate if there are Mars quakes. <laughs> Mars quakes. The trip began seven months before and 300 million miles, but it would come to nothing in those last 6.5 minutes during entry, descent, and landing where the the spacecraft had to slow from 12,300 miles per hour down to the the speed of someone jogging before it landed on, on Mars. As Bruce Bernard noted, landing on the Mars is one of the hardest single jobs that people have to do in planetary exploration. So it was a hard thing. In that 6.5 minutes, 15 things had to happen sequentially and all without failure. Any one failure of any one thing would completely ruin the entire mission. It had to enter the Martian atmosphere at exactly 12 degrees, if you want to find out why he talked to Tom. <laughs> and, then, and then after plummeting, <laughs> after plummeting through the atmosphere, they had to, it had to successfully jettison its space shields which had warmed to over 3,000 degrees. And then it had to deploy a special chute that would stop it further. And then in the final moments, its engines fired, slowing it to, as I said, the speed of a jogger. And then this $1 billion international project would be able to work. And you know when it happened... When it had, by the way, this thing was carrying things from all around the world. It had a German mechanical mole that's going to bore down 15 feet into the surface of Mars to, 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 to measure the internal heat. It had a French seismometer. That French seismometer is going to measure for quakes. And the descent, the, what's called the descent engines, were made right here in Redmond, Washington. <laughs> and they had parts from all around the world. But when touchdown was confirmed at flight control at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, uh, it erupted, the, the whole place erupted into cheers because they had done it. You know, I can't help but think. It's a bit of a stretch to compare the two, but I can't help but think that God celebrates when Every person who is inhabited by his spirit 
and is a cross bearer for Jesus Christ. There must be a celebration that we can not even imagine. Maybe the angels sing with joy as Holy Spirit gifted believers in God's church allow the Spirit of God, the indwelling them as God's gift to reign in their life as that Spirit of God empowers them to forsake sin, obediently follow His word, boldly and lovingly live a Jesus-like life, telling others in the community around them in word and action and with Holy Spirit-inspired courage. When heaven sees that, when heaven sees people, God's people, Spirit-inspired people, give generously because of what the Spirit does in their life, And when when these spirit-implanted gifts encourage and uplift and exhort and honor and build up and intercede for one another and share his word with boldness, I think heaven erupts with praise and joy. So my challenge to you as we finish this series on the birth of God's church, would you like to be that kind of church that brings an eruption of praise and joy in heaven as we deploy like that insight landing on Mars. All these various things, all this giftedness and that God has given us through His Spirit and use it for His glory. And would, you, would you do that, Village Church? That's what we've been talking about for the last six weeks, that we can be God's church today for him, for his glory, for his soon return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gifts you've given us, for the gift of your spirit, that greatest gift of all, Jesus living within. We're amazed at what happened with the early church and how they focused on what was most important. Help us, Lord, to do the same. To focus on your word and prayer as they did. And then with your strength and power, working together, inspired by you, empowered by you, be your church today. Work that work in us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.